Thank you, choir, Nick. Uh, good morning. We're continuing in our Advent series this morning. We're reflecting this, these four Sundays on this theme, that the incarnation of the King is the world's most unlikely story. Last week, if you recall, we considered Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the most unlikely woman to be the mother of a king. We learned from that account a number of important truths about the identity of the child, about the power of God to do the miraculous, and seeing in the life of Mary a response of trust and faith to the Word of God. We also, this Advent season, have choices to make about the ways that we are responding to God's Word and preparing our hearts for Christmas Day and for Christ as He breaks into our lives. This morning we're shifting our focus to the actual events of Jesus' birth. This is a sparse account that we read in Luke 2. We may have to do some work to sort of detraditionalize our thoughts based upon the actual text that we find here. I hope to do that gently. I know some of us love tradition. But of course, in all things, we want to understand what God's Word tells us and see clearly what it is that He would teach us from this text this morning. Like Mary, the village and the villagers of Bethlehem are unlikely ones to be involved in this Christmas story. And so now as we consider the actual physical arrival of the king born into our flesh and our world, we'll read from Luke chapter 2. It's on page 724 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Uh, There's a sermon outline as well on pages 6 and 7 in the bulletin. Read with me these familiar words. Hear the word of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, And was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no room for them in the end. Please pray with me. Father, this morning, as we come to your word, we're thankful that you have given it to us. And yet we know that we need you to be our teacher. We need you to tell us what these words mean. How they change us how they've changed our world. We pray that you would give us wisdom, give us grace, give us ears to hear, give me the words to speak. Help us to to hear your voice this morning. We need your help, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For a number of weeks, in 2007 and 2008, Prince Harry of Wales, you know, the younger son of Charles and Diana, he was with the British troops who were serving... I think, on the front lines and in various operations in Afghanistan. Harry had chosen a military career. He was there with the troops until an Australian newspaper found out that he was there and printed a story about it. And so, of course, his kind of cover is blown. He had to be reassigned. Uh, He ended up going back for another sort of secret assignment there as well. And as I was thinking about that, I was wondering, like, surely... His tours of duty were just a little bit different from his fellow soldiers, right? I mean, was he ever quite as 
exposed or as vulnerable? Were his missions ever quite as dangerous? Was there a secret sort of backup emergency plan where they would swoop in and and, uh, sort of take him out of harm's way? I don't know, but we sort of wonder this, don't we? Because people have always taken extraordinary measures to protect the life of a royal child. In the olden days, or at least in the movies, you remember there are scenes where the, the princess can't even walk down the stairs without an escort for fear, even in the palace, for fear that she would fall and somehow become injured. The future of the nation is resting upon this child. The hopes of all of the people of their country come together in him or her. So nothing can happen to the child. The child must be protected from accident or injury or poisoning or coup or anything else that possibly could happen. How would the world, how would the nation of England have reacted if Prince Harry had been killed in battle? Would have been an unpopular thing, of course, wouldn't it? But as we read the Christmas account, we see nothing of the kind of extraordinary human measures to protect and to provide for the true king of the universe as he comes to our planet. But of course, that's not the whole story. Much more effectively than any human could protect him, God is the one who's directing these events according to his purposes and fulfillment of ancient prophecies in amazing ways that don't seem exactly apparent to us just as we read through it. God's rule extends to Nazareth, and to Bethlehem, and to Rome, to bring about the arrival of the king in Bethlehem, an unlikely place as we begin the story, through even extraordinary means and unlikely kinds of ways. As we look at our text, we'll begin at the top with the emperor in Rome, who is setting the stage for these events in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. We, of course, are familiar with the history of Caesar Augustus, known as, formerly as Octavian, the great nephew of Julius Caesar, consolidating his, his power after Julius's death in 44 BC, defeating an, in the next decades Antony and others to become the sole emperor of Rome ruling from 27 B.C. until 14 A.D. Augustus brought all kinds of administrative reforms and consolidations and improvements to the empire, and he conducted censuses. We don't have an extra-biblical record of this exact census, but we know that he did that in a number of places. And so uh, there's, this corresponds with the history that we know of him. Verse 2 tells us that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Uh, This is actually a difficult historical problem. Scholars have really tried to figure this out because we have a record of Quirinius, but he became governor of Syria about 10 years after these events. And so there are a lot of different ways that scholars have tried to understand this. We know Luke seeks to write accurate history. Some critics have, have found here this is the, the place where we can prove that Luke is wrong. I don't think that's true. And, you know, on one hand, I, I don't want to trouble us with it, but I want, you to, I want to mention it. I want us to be aware that, that there is, you know, that this is not an easy solution, but plausible solutions are out there that scholars have proposed. But we should notice the bigger picture is that Luke is saying 
these events are within the context of world history. That Luke is putting it in the context of the events of that day. And as has often been the case, uh, more as archaeological evidence comes out, more and more the historicity of the New Testament and the Old Testament can be shown. For the census, um, according to verse 3, at least in Judea, everyone went to his own town to register. This was a particularly Jewish way of doing a census, where ancient and ancestral hometowns were very important. And we could even trace that idea back to the conquest in the time of Joshua and the dividing of the land. When God gave the land of Canaan to the people of Israel, they, they, the way they divided it and the way the Old Testament law was written were, were you know, rooted people in their own land. And so it makes sense that, that in this sense, uh, in the census, that people returned to their ancestral hometowns. Uh, as well as we're sort of considering the historical background here, we should think about the date of these events. Scholars have tried for centuries to determine uh, when this actually took place. If you remember the scene in Back to the Future, when um, Doc is first showing Marty that he made a time machine, you know, Marty's still stuck on this idea that you made a time machine out of a DeLorean. You know, but, but Doc is putting dates in. He says, you know, if you want to go back and see the uh, Declaration of Independence, you know, he puts in July 4, 1776. To witness the birth of Christ, he puts in December 25, I'm I'm sorry to say it, but that's probably not actually correct. It's the only unrealistic part of that movie. <laughs> um, you know, it was a great one, wasn't it? Everyone born in the mid or who saw it in the mid '80s. Anyway, July, uh, December 25, is probably not accurate. In the Middle Ages, the, one of the popes uh, commissioned a group of monks to determine when the birth of Jesus happened, because he wanted to renumber the Western calendar uh, to begin at the birth of Christ, rather than at the founding of Rome, which is where the calendar had begun in the West before that. The monks made some miscalculations. So, unfortunately, Jesus wasn't born at zero. He was probably born at either 6 or 4 B.C. Had to happen before the death of Herod in the spring of 4 B.C., which is, which is one date that we, that we you know, can be confident of. But there's nothing really improbable about December 25th as a mid-winter sort of setting. Uh, and as early as the 3rd century, people were, uh, the tradition had become clear that it was December 25th in which Jesus was born. To wrap this up, I know half of you are starting to feel like this has become history class. They weren't really signed up for that. But this is what Luke is telling us. Luke is giving us a history lesson. He's saying these events are verifiable in world history. Jesus isn't a ghostly figure who just floated down from heaven. Jesus entered into the reality of human history and human events. There isn't a sacred history and a secular history. Jesus is the Lord of all of history. And Luke wants us to see that and root our story, this event in that bigger story. Uh, Moving on then in the text, verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, 
who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Two critical things are happening here. Joseph took Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. Why are these things critical for Luke? Why does he mention them? Well, the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. We read that account earlier in the service, the prophecy from Micah, writing many centuries before. Matthew's account of Jesus' birth confirms that God's prophets had said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, a couple of things make that, as we had begun the story, a little bit unlikely. A couple things had to happen, right, for Joseph and Mary to get to Bethlehem. We should notice that the Romans have a play, have a, have a, have a part to play, have a role in it. Unwittingly, Augustus, who titled himself Commander Caesar, son of the deified one, is not the son of a god. He's a pawn in the hand of the real god who is acting through him to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. It reminds us of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. This should bring us comfort even in our day, that God is the one ruling over even those who think they're gods and who are ruling the biggest empire in the world. Without this Roman census, there was no reason for Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem. Jesus would not have been born there, and the prophets wouldn't have been correct, right? Well, that's one part of it. The second part that had to happen also is that Joseph actually may not have been required to take his family to register for this kind of census. He probably could have gone by himself and registered on behalf of Mary and Jesus. And of course, if this had happened, Jesus would also have been born in Nazareth. Mary wouldn't have gone with him. If you recall, we considered some of this when we talked about Joseph last year during Advent from Matthew's Gospel. Some think that Joseph took Mary because he feared for her safety. The shady-looking circumstances of her pregnancy could have made the community turn against her. The Levitical Old Testament punishment for adultery was stoning. And so I think we should see that Joseph took Mary along because he was bravely protecting her as his role, as his duty as patriarch, even on this difficult journey, even late in her pregnancy. So at the beginning of the story, Bethlehem seems unlikely, doesn't it, to be the place where Jesus was born. Everyone was in Nazareth and no one had a reason to go there, except that God was at work that God was directing the heart of the king, that God was directing Joseph, that God was making it happen, that his word would be true, and that this event would take place. Well, let's look then at the birth of the child in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Imagine if you hadn't ever read this story before, and you didn't, already, if you didn't already know it. Something that you might notice right away is this is a really sparse account. There's nothing here that you can build a 15-minute Christmas pageant on. There's not enough information. A baby is born. Compared to the angels and the other miraculous signs that have happened to get us to this point, this account, these verses are a bit maybe anticlimactic. 
just two verses, Jesus is born. Throughout the centuries, even Christians, even well-meaning people have wanted to know more, and at times have suggested more. And I want this morning for us to seek to focus on this text, and that requires us to strip away some of the extra traditions and legends that have influenced even us. If you go to Bethlehem today, if you can get there, it's in the hands of the Palestinian Authority, just south of Jerusalem. I was there about 15 years ago. And you can go into the amazing church, the Church of the Nativity. You go in, you go around in these narrow passageways, you go down the stairs deeply within the church in this room full of icons and incense and all of these pilgrims and all of this stuff is the spot. The tradition said Jesus is born here and people come and they kiss the spot. And it leaves you feeling a little bit like... Really? Is this really the spot? Is this really what this is about? All of this extra stuff that's grown up around it? Are we worshiping the king or are we worshiping the spot? Are we here because of what we feel and not because of what's true? People have wanted more details for this story, of course. In the early years of the church, many later narratives were written. They're called apocryphal gospels. They add traditions and legends to what we have in the four Gospels. A number of these were infancy narratives, giving us all kinds of legends about the things that Jesus did as a boy, miracles on the playground kind of stuff. It's really interesting. Of course, to be clear, these have no place in our canon. They were written much later. Um, They have no historical value, really, in our study of Jesus. One of of them is called the Proto-Evangelium. Protevangelium of James. It's written somewhere around 200 AD. The writer had nothing to do with James. The writer wasn't Jewish. The writer didn't really have a grasp of the customs and geography of Judea. But in this legendary narrative, the birth story goes something like this. Mary and Joseph were arriving in haste to Bethlehem. They weren't even quite there when the baby was going to arrive. There wasn't time for them to find adequate housing, so they found kind of a cave, a place of shelter, even where animals would have gone. Joseph left Mary alone in the cave to go to Bethlehem and find a midwife. He had these visions along the way. Mary gave birth alone by herself. Uh, As Joseph and the midwife were returning, there were dark clouds, there were bright lights. The uh, midwife confirms that Mary is still a virgin. After the birth, there's a woman named Salome who comes into the scene. She doubts this news. She's plagued with leprosy. An angel appears and tells Salome, touch the child and you'll be healed. She does. She touches the child. She's healed. And this story goes on like this. And we think, well, that's kind of ridiculous. Except that both the Eastern and the Western churches have picked up pieces of this legend and have brought it into our Christmas story. In the Eastern Church, the, um, it's, it's traditional that Mary was alone when she gave birth. In some denominations, in some groups, this idea of Mary's perpetual virginity is held. In our day, this idea that they arrived in haste and they found the only shelter available to them has sort of won the day. We've been influenced by this apocryphal gospel and we don't even know it. I want, to, I want to put the text this morning into its context and for us to consider what's more likely. 
So we'll put together a number of pieces of evidence for us to think about, stripping away the traditions and the legends and seeing what might be more likely what really happened. First, the text tells us that Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem for at least a few days, if not weeks, before Jesus was born. The King James Version gets the spirit of correctly. While they were there, the days were accomplished. The time became right. But while they were there, there's this extended period of time while they were there. Second, we should consider that universally, cultures worldwide take care of pregnant women and those about to give birth. Could Bethlehem really be such a shockingly unhospitable place to send a laboring woman away with only her husband, without shelter, without anyone helping? Third, Luke emphasizes that Joseph is in the line of David. Joseph isn't just even an ordinary person. He's of a royal family in the line of Israel's kings. Hospitality and family lineage meant everything in that culture. Even if the village was overrun with visitors, which it was because of the census, Joseph would have been welcomed as a guest, a royal guest, even if he was unknown to them personally, and even if he wasn't wealthy. This evidence, and more as we're about to see, I think leads me to the conclusion that Jesus was actually born not in a stable reserved for animals, but in an ordinary home. To get there, we have to unpack a couple other things. We have to take off our Western, modern cultural expectations and understandings and begin with what was actually an inn in those days. The word that's been translated as inn into English is actually the same word as the upper room, the place of the Last Supper. It's actually something more like a guest room. It's not a commercial inn or you know, a hotel, as we would think of it. Bethlehem was too small for such a commercial inn. There's another word that Luke uses in his gospel to to describe that kind of place in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember when the Samaritan takes him to the inn inn, and pays the innkeeper so that he could, uh, that the man could recover from his wounds. Most normal, ordinary homes in a village like Bethlehem had only two rooms. There was a guest room and there was a main room. And the main room was where the family lived and ate and slept and did everything. And the guest room was reserved for visitors because hospitality was so important in that culture. This main room often had sort of a lower part or or part of it was partitioned off where the animals would be brought in for the night to keep them warm uh, and to keep the, the house warm and to provide safety for the animals. So... Only the very wealthy would have a separate building for the animals. Most people would have a part of their main room of their home where the animals would live. So often they were built into the floor near that place where the animals stayed. They built into the floor little mangers where they had mangers, feed troughs, where the animals could eat that were actually in the main room of the house. Wrapping A newborn baby tightly in swaddling cloths was customary among the ordinary common people. There's an interesting reference in Ezekiel 16 to this. We haven't even gotten there yet, but what if the shepherds would have arrived to find Mary and Joseph alone in a dirty stable? What would they have done? They said, you know, you guys can't stay here. Our women will take care of you. Our wives will take care of you. Come, and we'll provide a place for you to stay in our homes. 
By the time the Magi arrived, which may have been days or weeks later, we don't know, it says that the Magi go into a house, specifically, not a stable. Taking all of this evidence together, I think a different picture emerges. And I've kind of come to this conclusion over the course of a few years, trying to, trying to read more and learn more about it. I think it goes something more like this. The normal guest room, which would have been ideal for housing Mary and Joseph for the birth of the child, is already full of guests when they arrived in Bethlehem. So instead of them being able to use the guest room, they go into the main room. The men are cleared out. Um, Mary gives birth. There, helped by other women and the village midwife, if there was one. And because they're in the main room of the home, right there are the ordinary mangers, either made of wood or built into the floor that baby Jesus was laid in. I'm convinced that we should picture simple peasant hospitality and a different kind of picture, providing what was needed to welcome the baby king into our world. That's a lot of details. I'm sorry this sermon has become so painfully technical. If you're still awake, you may be asking, so what? (laughs) Does it really matter where Jesus was born? Are you saying that we need to make a new kind of nativity set? Are we going to have a manger burning, not manger, stable burning kind of activity at some point? Of course not. (laughs) What difference does it make for me? What difference does it make for our celebration of Christmas? Well, my first response is personal application of aside, seeking to understand the Bible is really important. Seeking to correct faulty, misleading interpretations, seeking to take off our cultural uh, expectations, and the way that we've read into the text is really important. And I hope that this is, I hope I'm right. I hope that these scholars I'm reading who are much smarter than me, I hope they're right. I hope that this is, you know, that I've taught you something, that God has taught us something uh, and helped us understand Scripture more truthfully this morning. But beyond that, I think there's something really beautiful about rebuilding the story, about stripping away the traditions and finding something that's a bit different and richer. We saw last week in Mary that an ordinary woman is graced by the news of the coming of the extraordinary king. Similarly, I think in an ordinary home in Bethlehem, ordinary people whose guest room is full are graced by the coming of the Savior. Jesus didn't come to bless animals. He came for people. He came for ordinary, humble people whose lives have been unexpectedly interrupted by something extraordinary. And it it moves us, I think, to think what it would have been like for that ordinary village on that extraordinary day. The safe birth of a child is enough of a celebration in those days for a whole village. But something bigger is happening. Imagine the ordinary Bethlehemites who have heard Mary and Joseph talking a little bit about how they got there. And then this baby is born, and then these shepherds arrive in the middle of the night who are praising God, and they're talking about angels who have interrupted their ordinary evening and told them to come and see this baby. 
And then an entourage of wealthy astrologers arrive from hundreds or thousands of miles away. And they talk about signs in the heavens. And they bring priceless treasures and they worship this baby. We see the refrain a number of times in the first two chapters of Luke. The idea that all who heard and saw these things were amazed. They were filled with awe. They shared in the joy of Zechariah and Elizabeth, of Mary and Joseph, of shepherds. All who lived in the hill country of Judea and around Bethlehem saw extraordinary things in those days. Luke shows us that ordinary people had never experienced anything like this before. The God of their fathers had moved into their history After centuries of waiting, God had acted, and it was all about this royal child born on this night. That, I think, is the takeaway point about Christmas for us today. I don't have a do this number of lists kind of thing for this message. I want us to reconnect with the real picture of Christmas, that an extraordinary baby came into the lives of ordinary people. And he changed everything. Even more for us, who have seen not just this child as a baby, but seen him grow up, seen him minister, see him die and rise again. For us who've experienced his salvation, we should be amazed. We should be filled with awe. We should share in the joy that was overflowing in that little town of Bethlehem and all of the villages around it. A royal child has arrived. The hope of God's people has been revived. Grace has come to the humble and the ordinary in an extraordinary kind of way. How often our hope needs reviving, doesn't it? How often we lose our sense of amazement. How much do we forget that the world has been forever changed, that our lives have been forever changed. How much do we who are ordinary need to remember this extraordinary news? May this news be our Christmas celebration, be the foundation of it, be the sum of it. The King has come. child has been born. We were waiting, and he's arrived. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, this morning we're thankful that you have acted in history. That you weren't content to stay in heaven. But Jesus, that you came in in agreement with your Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. You came to grace our world with your presence in an extraordinary way, and we thank you for that. We who are, who are ordinary people need some extraordinary news. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came for us. We pray that this text would continue to, to change us, and that our celebration of Christmas would be oriented towards what's true and lovely and beautiful and what's worth celebrating this season. We ask that you would, would help us and be with us as we seek to understand and apply these words to our own lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let us stand together and close by singing Comfort, Comfort Ye My People.